Hello everyone and welcome. Uh, thanks for coming out on this rather chilly Canberra evening. My name is Andrew Sargent and I'm the coordinator of Special Collections Reference here at the library in the Reader Services team. And I also look after the library's community of advanced researchers, the Petherick Readers, if some of you have heard of those. Now, after a year of social distancing, only recently returning to public events, it's a pleasure for us at the library to welcome you to this very special conversation between Rod Barton, author of The Life of a Spy, and Michael Brissenden, respected ABC journalist and author himself. One of the requirements of our new COVID normal is that we all need to check into the library using the uh, Check in Canberra app. So if you haven't done so, can I ask you to pop out now and do it quickly, please? And if you need some assistance, you can talk to the security guard in the foyer. The other thing I would ask you to do at the moment too is turn any phones to silent. We're privileged to be here in this classic building opened 53 years ago now to learn more about the international politics and intrigue of recent decades. It is important though to remember that there is a far longer history of the land on which we gather. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging Australia's First Nations people, the first Australians, as the traditional owners and custodians of this land and give respect to their elders past and present and through them to all Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I recognise the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people on whose land this city now sits. And for any First Nations colleagues or visitors here tonight, welcome. Now for many of us, um, our introduction to what we see as the exciting and dangerous world inhabited by spies might be a James Bond movie. Um, Connery's still my favourite. Or The Bourne Identity, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Yet living in Canberra, we realise that many government policies and weighty decisions are shaped by covertly gathered information. That men and women who look just like us go quietly about ferreting out hidden facts. Some just operate for an office, uh, from an office for their whole career. Others are given opportunities to travel, research and work in exotic and dangerous places far from the popular tourist routes. Rod Barton is one of those who made the most of the travel opportunities offered him. In 1971, Rod joined the Department of Defence as a junior scientist and began his journey towards war-torn Mogadishu, UN weapons inspection in Baghdad, and negotiating a fraught and dangerous path through Europe and the Middle East during a decade of intense international conflict. Rod deposited his research and source material associated with his first book, uh, The Weapons Detective, The Inside Story of Australia's Top Weapons Inspector, in the National Library's Manuscripts Collection back in 2006. While part of this collection remains restricted for a few years yet, uh, the papers form an important primary resource for a very challenging pivotal period in Australian and international history. Rod's newest book, The Life of a Spy, takes a broader sweep of his life. How had he acquired and honed the skills that equipped him to search for weapons of mass destruction? How had he negotiated the difficulties encountered when he and his team couldn't find those weapons? And how did he manage to survive to be with us here tonight? And who better to shed a little light on the murky world of international intrigue than an operator who managed to successfully negotiate this perilous work and has survived to tell the tale? So to walk with Rod through the murky world of international intrigue, 
We're very pleased to be joined this evening by Walkley Award-winning ABC journalist Michael Brissenden. Michael's worked as a, as a political journalist and foreign correspondent for more than 30 years, with a keen interest in defence and national security. He's very well qualified to explore with Rod the challenges and achievements of Rod's incredible career in life. So please join me in welcoming Rod Barton and Michael Brissenden to chat about life as a spy. Uh, well, thank you all for coming. Um, it's a pretty good crowd for a Tuesday night in Canberra. Um, just start, the, the relationship between journalists and intelligence is sometimes a challenging one. Um, you know, we spend a lot of our lives as journalists trying to prize information out of intelligence sources, but often actually the two of us uh, are sort of doing the same job in a weird sort of way. You know, we're trying to understand what's really going on and try to get to the truth of things and reporting, obviously, to, uh, to, different, um, uh, to different bosses. In, in, I mean, obviously, in the case of an intelligence agent, you're reporting to your um, bureaucracy and your political masters, and uh, our job is to report, report to the broader public. Um, and of course, the work, as, uh, as was mentioned, the work of uh, an intelligence agent is a little different from George Smiley, although, uh, John le Carre probably got closer than many others given his insider information. I'm not sure if you've ever thought of writing fiction, but you know, perhaps that's something you might consider. Um, uh, in Rod's book, we do get a real sense of the methodical work the agencies do and the problem solving and the creativity that's required. We get a little of the excitement and certainly quite a lot of the frustration. Um, uh, so perhaps I'd just like to start by asking, why did you decide to write the book? Well, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I had, after the first book, I had a lot of anecdotes which I really couldn't put in that one. Uh, some of them are um, tense situations, some of them are humorous situations, but they didn't follow the theme of Iraq and what was going on at the time. The first book was written in 2006, uh, shortly after the, um, the 2003 Iraq war and it, it mainly concentrated on those political events. Uh, but I had all these other stories, and uh, some of my, and I used to recall these at um, dinner parties and, and these sort of things. People said, you should write a book about these. So I thought, well, how do I write a book about all these odd stories I have? Uh, so I melded them together and put it in with my life's work. But I also wanted to talk about some of the political events as well. And I wanted it to make it very, very readable. And, um, and the stories I have, uh, they're all, it, the book, if any of you have read it, or when you do read it, um, it's a very sort of conversational style. And I wrote it to be entertaining as much as anything else, but with some messages in, but not so heavy that you're going to turn off. And it's always a dilemma of trying to get some of those messages to the general public. And so that is partly why I came to writing this book. Which is sort of interesting because, as I was saying, you know, I mean, our job as journalists is to get yeah. the information to the public. Your job is not really to do that at all. So, uh, I mean, presumably you've signed the Government Secrets Act at some point. Yes. I mean, how do you wrestle with that, uh, that dilemma? Well, it, it is a bit of a dilemma. And as I say in the... 
in the, uh, I was going to say in the foreword, but you're not allowed to have that if it's a, uh, a non-fiction book has an author's note in, not a foreword. <laughs> I'm sure you're all aware of that, but I wasn't. Um, but it's still a foreword. Uh, and I, I said in that um, that I couldn't reveal everything. Uh, there are things I still can't reveal today, particularly about sources of information and a few other things, special operations and things like that. Maybe I'll write that book when I'm 99, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, so I couldn't put them into this book. But then there are a lot of things that are in a grey area. Can I reveal this or not reveal it? And um, sometimes I had to write it in such a way where I told the essence of the story without revealing things like sources or other sens very sensitive matters. But it was a bit of a wrestle. Mm. Um, I do say at the beginning there, though, that those details, things like sources and um, special op, only if you're uh, a foreign intelligence agency agent would you be really interested in that detail. Uh, it, it, no one else would be. I mean, because there is quite a lot of detail about the relationship with different intelligence agencies, for instance, with your relationship with the CIA, with, yeah. with the British. Um, well, there are probably two questions here. Uh, how different is the way you operate, Australian intelligence operates? I mean, obviously, we have a very close relationship with these people. This is the Five Eyes Agreement where, uh, yes. you know, we, we share a lot of information. But there's also interesting... Uh, I, I noted interestingly in the book, there's quite a lot that you're actually kept out of as, uh, uh, you know, from, um, particularly from American um, areas. Yes, uh, it, it is a very close working relationship, obviously, you know, the Five Eyes Agreement, uh, and I, again, I, it's not, I don't want to go too much sure. into that, uh, but we do share a lot of information, of course, with the US, and it's very valuable, uh, and the UK and the, and the others. It, it is... Uh, very valuable to Australia to have this information, to have this very close relationship. But we don't share everything. They don't give us everything and we don't give them everything either. Mm. We share things of common interest. And if we ask, maybe they'll give us a bit more. But uh, there is still this uh, difficulty of, um, uh, uh, of sharing everything. And I certainly noted this when I was working with the CIA in this operation called Gateway in Bahrain where I was assured that um, I was going to be fully integrated with the US, and they gave me an office in the old US embassy, uh, but it was an office outside of everything else, and the, all the CIA people worked over there, and there was a door between which I could never go through. And I never, in fact, I never had any real access to their intelligence. Even though we shared everything, mm. they had their own secrets, and they would not let me through this door. And in the book, of course, it also occurs later, as you'll see, um, post the 2003 war. And, yes, uh, it's yeah. quite, quite a lot in Iraq. And given that um, you know, we were members of the Coalition of the Willing and we yeah. had a very, very close relationship with the yeah. Americans in, in that war, that's interesting. Uh, and it surprised me, and I have to say, to some degree, it surprised my boss in uh, the Defence Intelligence Organisation. Mm you know, that we weren't, after being promised to be fully integrated, we weren't. Uh, well, uh, well, obviously we'll talk about um, yeah. Iraq a, a little later, yeah, but sure. wh um, why did you want to be a spy? Uh, I, I, I mean, like, when I was a kid, every kid is interested <laughs> in spies, but I never really had an ambition to be one. 
uh, it, it came about by accident, and uh, by sheer accident, really. Um, I was working in the public service here, uh, actually in the patents office, and as interesting as that is, I wanted something a bit different, and there was a promotion offered in the defence department, and I thought, hmm, this looks interesting. It was for a they wanted a scientist. I was a scientist, and um, uh, so I thought I'll, pl I'll apply. And I applied. I had no idea what the job was about. Uh, they sent a duty statement out, as always, and I read it. And I still had no idea what the job was about. It was so vague. And uh, so I turned up in the defence department uh, for an interview. I got the interview. Uh, I went to a special building. Building L, it was called in those days. No in indication that it was anything to do with intelligence. Got another security pass. So I had now two security passes on me. Escorted down a corridor, shown to a door, which was actually a steel vault door. Shown inside, it was a windowless steel vault. <laughs> the door opened and the door closed behind me. And I thought, what the heck is this? And the guy, there was one person sitting behind a desk and a woman sitting next to him taking notes. And uh, he said, there's been a terrible mistake. Thought, what on earth is all this about? And he said, we sent out the wrong duty statement. Here is, here is the correct one. And slowly he slid across the desk for me to read. And I was sort of... He wouldn't let go of it. <laughs> and I could see it was stamped confidential in red on the top. And in those days, it was a joint intelligence organisation. I could see that was written on the top. And I was desperately trying to read all of this. And then he pulled it back. But that was the first real indication that I had applied for a job in the intelligence world. And um, somehow I got the job. But I, it was purely accidental. But I have to say, I can't imagine doing anything else in my life. It, it seemed to be the perfect career for me. Mm. Even though I was a scientist, it seemed to be the perfect career for me. And one of the interesting things that I learnt reading the book about the tradecraft is that you had to learn um, which, what time to turn up for dinner, <laughs> uh, where the knives and forks were, you know, which fork <laughs> to use properly. Um, you know, etiquette was sort of pretty important. Well, it, well that was a different part of my <laughs> career, but that was true. Um, I was uh, selected as the um, intelligence defence intelligence liaison officer, a DILO, Australian Defence Intelligence Liaison Officer for London. So before I went to London, I had to go through some training, which uh, very kindly uh, our colleagues in DFAT put me through. There was other bits of training in, on the intelligence side as well. And uh, one, of the one of the things that we were trained in is etiquette. And, you know, which knife to use and which fork to use <laughs> and, uh, and, what, and also, you know, the questions like, well, what time would you turn up to dinner? Well, I thought that's obvious. If it's seven o'clock, you turn up at seven o'clock. Oh, no, it's not that simple. In England, uh, it's polite to turn up slightly late. So your host and hostess have time to do the last preparations and get the melon fork in the right place. So... That's the sort of thing. Something you carry with you for the rest of your life, uh, uh, no doubt. Um, it, it was quite useful, <laughs> but uh, 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 limited. <laughs> um, 
we, we were having a chat before, and um, uh, one of the things you, you mentioned was that one of the areas you're most proud of, of the work that you did, was in Somalia. I wonder if you could talk about the importance of that work. Um, not, peop- not very many people, particularly in Australia, know much about yeah. Somalia or think much about any of our engagements there um, and, and what we might have done there. Um, yes, I was particularly pleased to go to Somalia, but again, it was one of these things I was surprised about. Um, I'd been working, and we'll come to this later, of course, I'd been in Iraq as a weapons inspector in Iraq, doing disarmament-type stuff, of course. And um, one day I got a phone call from the United Nations saying, we want someone to go to Somalia uh, to do disarmament. I said, oh, uh, and I said, well, I know about weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, chemical, biological weapons, I know all about those, but I don't know anything about AK-47s or militias or anything like that. And I said, you know, why? And, he, and she sold me with the old line, we think you can make a difference. So sure enough, I said, all right, I'll go along, and I became the head of the, um, uh, I became the director of disarmament and demobilization, and I added an R on the end, so it's DD and reintegration. And uh, the reason I added an R on the end is, it's all very well disarming militia and demobilizing them, of course, but then what do you do? You have to reintegrate them into society, and that was my policy. Uh, No one told me how to do the job. The UN clearly didn't have anybody with any skill in this area at that time. It's changed now and they have lots of training courses and there's a 1,000 page manual on it now. There was nothing when I went and I had to make it up as I went along. And it was probably about the worst time to go to Somalia. It was just before the event Black Hawk Down, some of you may have heard of that event and they made a film about it. Uh, sometimes called, referred to as the Battle of Mogadishu, uh, where um, something like 17 or 19 Americans were killed, and no one mentions the Somalis, but there were about a thousand Somalis killed on that on that day. Uh, and so, and I was working to disarm the very militias that had killed these Americans. And uh, but I I did have some success there and I worked not in Mogadishu, I went out into the bush. Uh, I went to Baidoa, and there, uh, to cut a long story short, must read the book, to cut a long story short, I um, started to build a farm. I built a farm. And the whole idea is the militia men would come in, they would hand in their weapons, they would get a sort of certificate for that, and their certificate gave them certain rights and privileges in the town. And in response, return for surrendering their weapons, we would train them in farming techniques. You know, how to look after chickens, how to grow vegetables. And I didn't know whether this would work, but it was almost too successful. Everyone wanted to come in, especially when you were out from the politics of Mogadishu, out in the bush, the surrounding, and there were something like 3,000 militiamen in that area. And we can only take, well, initially, we could only take about 150 on the farm. So they had to decide amongst themselves who was going to come into, the, into work. But that, and the fact that it actually worked. And um, I remember talking to 
one of the American representatives there, and they said, no, 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 this would never work. What you have to do is just buy the guns. That's easy. And you can, if you buy the guns, and we'll, we'll provide the money, we'll give you $100 for every gun you get in, and then that solves the problem. And for $100, they'll hand in these weapons. Yeah, but I said, what happens then? What do they do with $100? Go and buy more ammunition for another gun they got tucked away somewhere? Uh, what happens when the $100 is distributed through their extended family and they've got nothing? They'll join another militia. So you have to do something different. You have to reintegrate them and give them a, a new life. And so do you know if that program is still running? Or? Well, it ran... Uh, and that was the other thing the Americans were saying. Well, uh, and even some of the members in the UN were saying, I said, uh, the farm won't belong to the United Nations. The farm will belong to the Somalis, to the local community, to the elders. They will uh, have responsibility for the farm. The farm will generate money because we'll be producing things. We also drill the well for water, and it's a very dr it's a dr drought area, really, or a, a desert area. And uh, when we found water, with a bit of help from my Indian friends, uh, the Indian army was there, and they, they helped uh, locate places where we could drill for water and you can sell the water to the locals. So the money that's generated will go back into the community and help run the farm. And, uh, but I was told, no, you can't give the farm to the Somalis. They will just tear everything apart and take... They didn't understand the Somalis. They had a lot of pride. Mm. They, they, you have to understand the people. And I said, no, that won't happen. And it didn't happen. And even after the UN pulled out of Somalia, the farm continued to run, and it was a success. I only did it as a pilot scheme because one farm doesn't solve all the problems, and I had various little schemes all around the place that I was going to, to run. Uh, but uh, it was a, quite a success. They, they gave up their weapons, uh, they got the training, and the farm continued for several years after the UN pulled out. And it would still be running today and it is running actually in another form today, it would still be running today except the militias in Mogadishu got wind of this farm and thought, ah, oh, here's something we can, you know, we've got the weapons, we'll go out and we'll, we'll raid the farm. And they pulled out the pipes and they pulled out everything that could get hold of, the pumps and the, everything else. And unfortunately, the manager I appointed, a Somali, a senior Somali, who, who actually had a degree in agriculture from a, un a university in the US. Um, he got shot in the process, but fortunately survived. He got shot in the shoulder, and he, they managed to get him out into Kenya. Um, so the farm sort of disappeared for a while, but uh, now it's in Baidoa, and it's still run uh, by the locals. So it's but it's not the same purpose as it was when I was there. And of course, uh, if I remember rightly, that's where you had a price put on your head, which <laughs> was only $100, which must have miffed you somewhat. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I, I, had, I, had a, uh, I had a very... When they established this division that, uh, of, disarmament, uh, of uh, uh, disarmament and demobilisation, I had no staff. They just created this division. Someone in New York said, we should have someone to do this. I'd gone there for that purpose, but when I went there, there wasn't such a division. So suddenly they established it. I had no staff. I didn't even have any, a desk or a chair. I had no, nothing. 
So I had to get all of that. And, um, and the staff I got came from other people working in the UN in Somalia. Uh, and, and I must say, uh, staff that others didn't want. <laughs> uh, so I got a, a, but they were good. Uh, for me, for my purpose, they were. And they actually came from the political division. So I got a retired Egyptian general, uh, General Mohammed, and he was great. He liked smoking uh, Cuban cigars and lying back a lot, but, but he was good because he, of course, he spoke Arabic uh, and um, he had a certain presence about him. And I had a, the, a former Sudanese ambassador had fallen out with Sudan, you know, with the government in Sudan, and uh, he um, he was the encyclopedia of diplomacy. I, I refer, I, I say of him in the book, he was a bit like C-3PO from Star Wars. He knew everything about diplomacy, and uh, and he could never call. I said, just call me Rod. Oh, he could never call me Rod. He always had to call me Mr. Rod. But anyway, just getting back to, the, <laughs> so, but, uh, but he was good because he, he'd go out and he picked up bits of intelligence here and there and I used him for that purpose as well. And he came in one day and said, um, Mr. Rod, um, you have to be very careful. I said, oh, yes, I'm always careful. He said, um, a price is on your head. I said, oh. And then he went on, uh, no, and then I thought, ah, oh, I should ask what militia has put a price on my head, because there were several militias I was trying to disarm. That was, should have been my first question, but like all of you, I wanted to think, to ask how much. So I thought, in my mind, I thought, how much is my life really worth? And I thought, well, $100,000 would be a fair amount. But, but, but this is Somalia, so maybe $10,000, you know, maybe even a bit less. So I got a shock when I asked him, and he said, $100. <laughs> what? Life is cheap. <laughs> um, but $100, $100 is about worse then, about yes, a year's salary for right, Somalia. Exactly. So oh, eh, no, yeah. not too bad. Um, let's talk about Iraq now, because that, of course, is where your, um, your work is most well known. Yes. Um, and... I, I know interesting, the interesting thing in the book is, uh, as well, there were sort of two Iraq, obviously, there were two Iraq periods. There was the night, early 90s period where uh, you were advising, you were in Canberra, I think, and advised Bob Hawke that the Iraqis were a long way from um, having a nuclear capability, and then you actually realised that they were a lot closer than that. How close was Iraq in the early 90s? To getting to, a nuclear weapon. To getting a nuclear weapon. Well, uh a lot, lot further than we'd thought, uh, and, and the CIA had thought, mm. it's not just us. Uh, we didn't really know anything about their nuclear program, as it turned out, their nuclear weapons program. Uh, naturally, we started looking at their research program and what they were doing there, and they were doing some suspicious things, but there was nothing really... We knew that it hadn't gone that far. I mean, they'd bought reactors from France, and uh, they had one from Russia, and uh, they could make a little tiny bit of plutonium, and they couldn't really enrich uranium, although they were looking at doing that. Uh, but you need, you know, a few, quite a few kilos, and you know, they couldn't really do any of that in any great quantity. So we knew that they were, we knew they weren't very far advanced. But 
that's because we were so focused on that research establishment at Chuwetha, which I've been to quite a number of times. What was happening, of course, is that they decided to build <coughs> a facility elsewhere. And they decided to use a very, what would be described even then, as a primitive technology to enrich uranium at this other facility. And it was the same process, basically, as they'd used in the Manhattan program for the first nuclear weapon that the United States had built. Partly they did that because they knew they could do it, and the guy who was put in charge didn't want to fail in Iraq. You must <coughs> not fail. Failure might mean death. So he had to succeed. Uh, and also, they had all the documentation from the Manhattan program provided to them by the United States. So they knew what to do, and they had some good scientists. And so they knew what to do. And did, they they, did, did they have an intent to do it? I mean, did they... Oh, know? absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. They, 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 they intended to build a nuclear bomb. Mm. And in fact, uh, we know that because uh, they had another facility which we knew nothing about and never... See, in the first Gulf War, lots of these facilities, like Chuwetha, the research establishment, was heavily bombed. The reactors were flattened. <laughs> and, uh, but this other facility I mentioned that was enriching uranium was, was barely touched. They did drop a, a few bombs on it because they thought it might be some industrial facility that might help the war. The Americans didn't know what it was. And I spoke to the analysts who uh, had decided on which, where to bomb. Mm. But there was also another facility that they had to do research into building, you know, how do you build a bomb? How do you design a bomb? And they had got very far advanced in the design of a nuclear bomb uh, to the extent that once they got the enriched uranium, they could have made a bomb very, very quickly. They'd done all the basic research. It's a bomb. It was an implosion device. I won't go into all the technical detail, but it was an, impl an implosion device. They'd done all that preliminary work of implosion, detonators, all of this sort of stuff. All they wanted was the enriched uranium. And presumably and, in the, in the intelligence had, community, that was fairly alarming, right? It, it was <laughs> it absolutely stunned us. Yes. And I might add that it was a factor when we came to the 2003 war. We'd missed all that. The Americans had missed mm. it, we had missed it, and partly through our own arrogance. We weren't looking for anything as primitive as this old technology from the Manhattan program. We were looking at things like advanced centrifuges, and we knew they'd been getting tubes and for make centrifuges that would spin and um, at very high uh, RPM. And we'd, we'd seen that, we'd seen that the Germans had helped them and they'd had carbon fibre, you know, uh, tubes built and, and they'd already built a few, but this was all experimental at that stage and they'd done that at Chuwetha. Uh, so we were looking at that and thinking, oh, well, you know, they're 20 years away. But we didn't, through our arrogance, our Western arrogance, we didn't think anyone would do this, use this old technology, which was very energy expensive. You require your own power station to run this technology like the Manhattan program. And that's exactly what they did. They built, their, they built a power station, a gas-fired power station, about three kilometers from the plant so we wouldn't see it. And they buried all the wires, which is very unusual in Iraq or even anywhere, uh, that ran into the, um, into the enrichment plant. And when, when we 
uncovered all of this, we found that they'd already enriched several kilograms of uranium to the right level for a mm. bomb. Now you need at least 25 kilograms, so they were on their way and they were still working on it. And some of my colleagues at Los Alamos said, uh, well, uh, probably they could have got it within a year, two years. And it was I the first it war that disrupted that, that, was it? Sorry? It was the first war that disrupted that? I mean, that basically yeah, blew, the first out, war, blew all that yeah. out. Well, the, yeah. well, it didn't blow it up because, as I said, we didn't know about it, so right. we didn't bomb it. But we eventually, uh, not so much myself, but we, uh, in fact, it was the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, but I was also involved in the, some of the early stages when we had the documentation, and that's in, in described mm. in the book. We realised that they had... Um, how far advanced they were, and we realised they had designed a bomb because we had we got the documentation before we actually found the facilities. So we knew how far they were, and of course then the destruction of all of this came along as required uh, under the uh, UN Security Council resolution. Iraq didn't declare any of this. In fact, they tried to hide it from us. They tried to remove things from that. These things required giant magnets, and the magnets they built were 60 tons in weight, and you require a whole pile of them. It was bigger than the Manhattan program. Uh, and they'd put them on trucks and try to move them out. Uh, but we discovered some of these things as they were moving them out. So we eventually got everything and destroyed everything, uh, or at least the Iraqis did under our supervision, which was what was required under the resolution. And, and then, of course, in Iraq, the, the focus shifted uh, to biological weapons later on. Um, you joined in with Hans Blix and that uh, UN operation. I, I wonder what the pressure was like at that time for you all, because, you know, we all saw it all the time. We kept reporting it all the time that, you know, there was a lot of... There seemed to be a lot of pressure on Hans Blix and the team um, coming from the Americans in particular, um, people wanting outcomes and you're basically there, you know, trying to do your job. I just wonder what it was like inside that team at that time. Um, are you referring to the earlier period? Yeah, the earlier, the earlier period. The earlier period when we were uncovering the biological weapons yes. program. That wasn't actually under Hans Blix. Oh, okay. Hans Blix came along later. All right, my mistake. The, just prior to the 2003 war. He yes. was appointed in 2001. So that was the point. There were a lot of there were a lot of visits at that time. I, I recall a lot of missions to Iraq. And uh, there well, was a lot of pressure not in on you. Well, no. Let me let me explain. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, with the biological program, uh, Iraq after the after the 1991 Gulf War, Iraq had to surrender all its weapons of mass destruction, uh, and as I said, with the nuclear program. They denied they had it, but eventually that was uncovered. The chemical program, we already knew a lot about because they'd used chemical weapons against Iran and that had been heavily bombed and that was the first inspection I went on. Mm. The biological program, we knew nothing about either and Iraq didn't declare it as they were required to do. And, um, and so it took us almost, well, I suppose four years. I have to say here that the UN didn't do a proper investigation to begin with. Uh, but eventually they did, and this is when, as I referred to in the book, the gang of four came together, myself, uh, two Brits and an American, and we came together and we had a concerted effort in hunting 
down whether they had a biological weapons program or not. And that's, that, that hunt for those weapons started in 94. That was three years after the, um, uh, the first Gulf War. And there was a lot of pressure on us then uh, from the Security Council to uh, either find it or, say, give Iraq a clean bill of health. And uh, even I wasn't sure whether it had a biological program. But eventually, bit by bit, we uncovered it. And that's a story in itself. But bit by bit, we uncovered this program using, basically, intelligence techniques. And we found exactly what they'd done. And eventually, Iraq started to admit to these things. So then we destroyed it, or had it destroyed, by the Iraqis under our supervision and flattened the whole place. They had a whole facility that was never been bombed because we didn't know what it was. Never been bombed and they'd made anthrax there and other biological agents and that was that. Was that. So that was leading up. But then uh, in um, Iraq eventually had had enough of us, the biological weapons, the Gang of Four and everybody else. And uh, it came to a head in 98 and they decided not to have any more inspectors in the country. Mm. The only reason they tolerated us in the first place because of the sanctions, and they said, you know, if we cooperate, the sanctions will be lifted. And of course, they never entirely fully cooperated. They never fully gave us all the information. And, and I remember one general said to us, t said to me, you'll never lift the sanctions, no matter what we say. And uh, that was about the point when they said, no more inspections, we're not having it. So they kicked us out. So from the end of 98 onwards, there were no inspections. Hans Blix was appointed in 2001, so there'd been no inspections for a few years by the time he got into the job, and they wouldn't allow us back in. Mm. He set up a, a new inspection regime, but nothing, we couldn't go into Iraq right. until just before the Iraq war in 2003. Yes. Uh, look, I'm aware that... Um People want to ask some questions uh, soon, so um, I've just got a couple, a couple of quick ones before we get to that. Um, the so after the after the war, of course, then the focus turned to weapons of mass destruction and um, uh, the justify the looking for justification for the war. Um, obviously, there's a lot of pressure as as comes through quite um, strongly in the book from the Americans to uh, to definitely to try and you know to find. Uh, weapons of mass destruction, which of course y you never did. Um, we went to war on a lie, essentially, didn't we? You can put it in those terms, and I sometimes describe it in those terms. Um, we went to war not because of weapons of mass destruction anyway, but weapons of mass destruction were the just was the justification for going to war. Mm. Um, the the real problem is what uh, the the politics got ahead of the intelligence. It was um, uh, George Bush that said after 9-11, and I, I very clearly remember his uh, State of the Union address on the 29th of January 2002, about a year before the Iraq war. And I remember George Bush in his State of Union address saying, Iraq is a grave and growing danger. And that came as a surprise to me, but it also came as a surprise 
to the CIA and to the United Nations for that matter. Iraq was not a grave and growing danger. I've just told you about all the things we disarmed. We got rid of the biological program, the nuclear program. There may have been a few unanswered questions, but our belief is they didn't have much left. But once George Bush says that, if you're an analyst in the CIA, you better find the evidence to support your president. And that's where the corruption was. Uh, the lack of uh, their tradecraft, the lack of objectivity then. And intelligence is a funny business. There's always little bits of evidence here. You get tons of information coming in. What do you reject? What do you accept? How reliable is this? It's like journalism. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and you have to have supporting information. You don't just say, well, he says this, right, we'll write it, this is what happened. No, you've got to have corroborating information. And they just didn't have that in many cases. And they use sometimes a single source. And that happened in the biological area. Single source, who was a fake, saying that they had um, biological, they'd remade biological weapons. So it was that sort of thing. And the analysts, desperate to get something that they support the president and of course the head of the CIA wanted this as well uh, so that was uh, it was a corruption of all the process that should occur because the politics came before the real intelligence and I blame the analysts as much as the political system for this some of the analysts really believed what they were doing some didn't quite mm. But uh, I blame the analysts as much as the, the political side. The political, of course, they didn't go to war anyway over weapons of mass destruction. That was the excuse. And they could say, look, the analysts say that Iraq really is a grave and growing. They're getting all these. But they wanted to go to war for, you could say, geopolitical. Uh, mm. and, and one of the things that does come through quite strongly is the, you know, for want of a better term, the sexing up of the... Um, of a lot of the uh, the documentation, um, and we know that uh, you know David Kelly uh, in the UK was mm. uh, deeply, tragically involved in exposing some of that, perhaps. Uh, and and I just wonder how you feel about how the politics demanded the intelligence and some of the corroboration to be sexed up to. Uh, to fit their political agenda, because you are quite cynical about the politics, understandably, uh, in the book, and, and that does come through. Yes, well, it was a corruption of intelligence, just as I've been describing. Mm. It, the, the, the politics just was running ahead, well ahead, and anything that, any report that came out, because it had to, uh, there was a demand publicly, of course, uh, to, 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 get the, to get the sentences and, the, and the, um, the propaganda out, if you can put it that way. So, you know, there was never any... When a politician spoke about the intelligence... I mean, in, in the intelligence world, when you describe something, you say, this is possible, or that might occur, or may... Not, there's very few times any positives, except when the politicians cross out the possible, cross out the maybe, put down, Iraq has, getting, has got these weapons. Not, well, they, they could possibly have them. No. And, and because they really needed to convince the public so that they could justify the war. And that's as, that's as terrible as you can get, in my view. When you're going to war and lives are involved, that's as, as corrupt as politics as you can get. I don't know if you, you can comment on this or, or no, but I mean, how closely aligned with all of that were we, was Australia? 
in, in that process? Well, we unfortunately, under John Howard, went along with it. Uh, and, uh, and I would say that was because of the alliance we had with the United States. He wanted to go along. And um, uh, the same with Tony Blair in the UK. They wanted to support the Americans. Uh, and there was, I'm not saying there was no intelligence, but I said, the Australian intelligence agencies didn't get it, I can say this now, Australian intelligence agencies didn't get it as wrong as the United States did. <laughs> we, we, our intelligence agencies, in fact, DIO at that stage, Defence Intelligence Organisation, saying there is no evidence for this. They didn't say it didn't happen, but they said there's no evidence for a new biological programme. And that was the advice that was being given to our Prime Minister. When he spoke in Parliament about the need to go to war, he quoted not the Australian intelligence, but the US. You have to go back to Hansard and look at that. He was quoting the US. So what he was quoting was quite correct. But he never came back to the Australian intelligence and said, well, but our own analysts say there's no evidence. Mm. I mean, do you think we've learnt anything out of all of that experience? No. <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, one of the quotes I give here is from Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Some of you have read that book, and, many, and it was great influence to me when I read it in my 20s. And uh, the quote I give is that Huxley said that, um, the th that, that, that men don't learn anything from history is the greatest lesson in history. And that's, I think, is certainly true. We, 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 didn't, we haven't learned anything in all that time. Uh, and, of course, the book sort of ends at this... Well, uh, around the period of 2004 when you did sort of break cover, uh, you had a, a, an interview with Four Corners which um, revealed uh, your concerns about abuse at Camp Cropper. Um, I, I I wonder for you how significant that moment was and what is the line that you decide you are going to do something like that? Which I, you know, I know that is a big step for anybody who's worked in the intelligence community to, to do something like that. That was one of the most difficult decisions I had to make to go public. Uh, uh, and I, I, I knew the consequences of doing it. I wasn't uh, revealing any official secrets, of course. But I knew I'd be labelled a whistleblower and a troublemaker. Uh, and I knew I'd become an outlaw within the intelligence community. And I knew that any chance of any work back there uh, would be over. Uh, and also, it was sort of um, ingrained into you that you'd never speak publicly, even when mm. you retire. That's why you don't see too many people writing a book like this, The Life of a Spy. You never admit to all of that. You never t talk about your work, even after you've left. Because it was sort of... Uh, and I'd been in that business for a long time by this stage. So it was a very, very difficult decision for me to make. Uh, I made it for two reasons. One, because of all the lies that had been told. And even after we knew there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the government still not admitting to that. That was part of it. But the other, th the other thing that really disturbed me 
was the prisoner abuse. Now this was before we saw those terrible pictures about Abu Ghraib and the American treat mistreatment of prisoners and so on. And I I'd raised it within to, at a very senior level in the Defence Department in Canberra and they listened to me and nodded and so on and there's one thing I regret that I hadn't pushed it harder. But I thought well they've listened and you know and I said we should have nothing to do with this anymore and we should condemn it and nothing happened. And then the next thing we know, it's, we see the Abu, pictures of Abu Ghraib and we also see the defence minister denying that we had any involvement in this. And I thought, hang on, we, we didn't torture people, but we had involvement with those prisoners. Mm. I had involvement with mm. those prisoners. I had been to, they call it Camp Cropper, which is a funny name for a prison where people sort of end up <laughs> in a CIA prison, Cropper, but it was named after apparently a, a soldier, Mr. Cropper or Sergeant Cropper. And, um, but uh, they'd been ill-treated before they'd gone into this prison. And I'd been, bit by bit, I'd been collecting information on that. After all, I'm an intelligence officer and I'm good at collecting bits of information. I didn't have a complete picture uh, and I didn't have 100% evidence, but I had enough to be very, very concerned about it. And uh, as it turned out, it was absolutely true what I, what I reported. And again, since and some of the people who had been mistreated, who I knew quite well, some of the Iraqis, have, have reported about their maltreatment. And so, uh, and I thought, this has to be told to the world. We just cannot leave this as if you know, we had no involvement and it didn't happen. It did happen and the world should hear about it. And that's what really convinced me about it. And uh, I wasn't going to... I'd been asked several times to do a Four Corners program and I declined. And it was Liz Jackson. If I'm very persuasive. Yep, yep. <laughs> and uh, very persuasive. And uh, I thought she was going <laughs> to... She came... She, she asked me and I refused several times and eventually I thought, no... I have to say something about this, and Four Corners is the ideal medium to present it. And I thought, and she was going to do a program on this, and I thought, well, I'll be part of this program, and she will interview lots of other people. I, it turned out I was the program. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but I was pleased that I'd, I'd said it, and, uh, and I still, even after that, I was still pushing it, but the government was still denying it. Mm. Well, I mean, you mentioned it not particularly popular among. Uh, your colleagues, what do they think now? Well, some of my colleagues, of course, were friends and have stuck by me mm. throughout. Uh, and I think, I think it sort of most of those who I'd worked with did keep, you know, friend, you know, didn't. Uh, I wasn't an outlaw as far as they were concerned, but it was the senior management that wanted nothing to do with me. And not only that, I was never to enter that building again. In fact, when I was in the building, I was almost escorted out. And uh, in fact, I, one of the guards who I knew quite well at the entrance to the Defence Intelligence Organisation said, uh, he said, Rod, because I knew me quite, he said, Rod, I have instructions never to let you back <laughs> in this building. And I never stepped foot back in that building ever again. So that's how, that's how deep it was. Mm. And, some of, the, some of the staff were told 
don't even mix with Rod Barton socially. That's how deep it was. Mm. Mm. It did happen still, of course. Of course. That, they were told that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I'm aware there may be some questions from the audience. Um, if there are, please, there's some microphones coming down. So. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, there are microphones coming, so people can wait till the microphone's there, because we are recording this um, at the library, not the spooks. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you want to raise your hands, and the microphone will come to you. Good evening. Noting I haven't read the book yet, so the answer to this may be within it. Uh, what was going through your head when you saw Colin Powell give his presentation to the United Nations, knowing your intelligence background and your United Nations background as well? Sorry, Col Colin Powell's presentation. To oh, Colin Powell's yes. presentation. What, what did you think of that? Yeah, Colin Powell's presentation. <clears throat> well, um, I, I was quite impressed uh, <laughs> because it was so new to me, and he presented his evidence at the Security Council. Uh, I wasn't allowed, although I was the special advisor to Hans Blix, who was head of the um, inspection regime, and Blix was at one end of the Security Council chambers, and, and um, Colin Powell was at the other, so quite significantly with George Tennant, the head of the CIA, sitting right behind him. Uh, but I was quite impressed. I mean, I was always thought that Colin Powell was a good guy, and impressive, and genuine. And I think his presentation was genuine. I think, actually, he said since, you know, I was misled, and he was. Um, but he, he presented it, and with, its, uh, and with quite a lot of uh, intelligence that had been sort of declassified or sort of downgraded so they could present it. Very unusual presentation at the Security Council. And I thought, yeah, I've never seen or heard of this. I've talked to the, my CIA colleagues. They've never told me about this, but course, as we said before, they don't reveal everything to me. But I thought, yeah, that, that's quite a good, good presentation. But um, once we start looking at this a bit more carefully, uh, you saw how thin the really the information or the intelligence was. It had been, as I mentioned before, the, um, the CIA analysts had lost their way in all of this. They had lost their objectivity. Uh, there was also this uh, group think, you know, they have to have weapons because everyone else says they've got weapons and so on. And everything we see now is interpreted in the light of uh, they've got weapons. And therefore, this activity we see on satellite imagery, that must be chemical weapons being moved around. Well, there's some characteristics of it, but a lot of it was just nonsense. And even when Colin Powell said, we even have a source who was an engineer for the biological weapons. You know, he's an engineer and he had involvement in producing and uh, he's, you know, a direct source. And, he, and, he, and this source was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a guy who was complete fake and a liar and the only source. I don't know whether Colin Powell was told that. Um, but. When you hear it the first time, you think, oh, he's presenting it, it must be, must be. So the, f the first thing I did after that is through our UN system, and we had a little intelligence unit in the UN. We don't admit to it, it's an information unit. Uh, we, I started asking, I wrote a series of questions to the Americans, never got response. <laughs> and and when, uh, when we started investigating that uh, through 
the Iraq survey group, which was investigating where are these missing weapons, we looked at, every, and in fact, when we started, after the, um, the Iraq war in 2003, and we went there with this group called the Iraq survey group, headed by the CIA, uh, their complete focus was on Colin Powell's talk, on his presentation, and we investigated each aspect of it, and each aspect just fell to nothing, just crumbled away, and we thoroughly investigated everything. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was just, it went all to nothing. <laughs> uh, and that should have been an eye opener. Even for, even for the CIA, but they still wouldn't admit there were no weapons there. No, it took them, yes. Yeah, it took them a little while. A little while to get around to that. Uh, anyone else? Just further to that, um, it must be hard for the UN to stand up to its most powerful member and host nation. So I'm wondering how much pressure Hans Blix and Anmovik came, felt they were under within the UN to come up with the sort of answers that the Americans wanted to hear. Yeah, uh, that's a very good question, and uh, you're right. Uh, the UN, uh, the, the UN came under a lot of pressure from the US, and Blix himself personally came under mm. a lot of pressure. And um, the um, the inspection regime has a board of governors, and uh, which Blix is the chairman. And I remember uh, the American representative at this, on this board of governors really got stuck into Blix saying you're not doing your job properly uh, and so on and it became quite a heated uh, discussion and Blix was a very Swedish, very calm, uh, former diplomat, former foreign minister actually and even Blix got quite agitated at the American accusations which were very very strong but Blix also told me that he had representatives come in and say, you know, you've got to change your views on this or that. Um, but Blix, we stood out. Uh, we stood up for what we thought and what we believed. Um, so the credit goes to the, uh, the UN then, or to Blix, that we didn't buckle under to this pressure. Um, not that it would have made any real difference. Uh, in the end, what, the, what we were saying as inspectors was neither here nor there. The US had dismissed us anyway. So, um, yeah, it, the war would have occurred no matter what we, had set, what we were going to say. Oh, g'day, Rodin. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but... But you are. <laughs> but I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, we didn't really discover... I mean, you did all the, the that work on growth media that really put pressure on the Iraqis to reveal much more about the BW program. But um, just before Desert Storm, you know, we're going back, you know, before then, four or five years before you did that work, there was a, a rapid-fire vaccination program of US and UK troops. This is in the December. Uh, for anthrax and Botox A, or the toxoid. Seems a little strange, doesn't it, if we didn't know there was a BW program, or someone didn't know there was a BW program, that there would be this rapid-fire, under-pressure um, vaccination program. Uh, it just seems a little bit odd, perhaps a tad suspicious. You know, we didn't do it in Vietnam, we didn't do it elsewhere. 
but very specifically for at least those two agents, there might have been a third. So I'd just like your comments on that. Thanks. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, even before, well before we knew uh, about uh, the program, there was vaccinations done. In fact, on my very first mission into Iraq in 1991, when we knew nothing about a biological weapons program, um, the UN, with the help from the US, uh, gave vaccinations uh, to the inspectors. And I had an anthrax vaccination and I had uh, some Botox. And I think that was precautionary rather than anything else. I think, I don't believe the US had any real information. Uh, it was that if there was going to be a war, these are the sort of things you should protect against. Anthrax being an obvious one because it's so easy to produce in quantities. Botox is less certain why we were why they were concerned about that, uh, because that's not a traditional chemical, uh, biological warfare agent, and therefore why have uh, you know protection against uh, botulinum toxin? Um, so I'm not exactly sure where that information it came from, but the Americans themselves really had no idea either, because uh, otherwise we would have. <laughs> we would have um, uncovered the program a lot earlier. The Americans were as keen as we were to, to uncover, as the UN was, to uncover any biological weapons program. And that's why it lingered for a long time, because no one really knew anything. So... Um, Does it suggest they were, you know, they, they, they were definitely preparing for some sort of conflict? Then? Yes, yes. Mm. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I suppose a bit of a Dixer, <laughs> in a way. Uh, Dorothy Dixer, but... Uh, looking back at your career, are you, uh, you've obviously worked with multilateral sort of efforts. Do you think they were effective and do you think that they continue to be effective? Uh, another good question. I, I sometimes despaired of all the years I spent in Iraq and doing weapons inspections when what happened in the end, we went to war anyway. What was it all for? You know, I spent a good chunk of my life doing that sort of work. And um, on the other hand, you had to do it. You had, you had to try. Uh, and all right, perhaps we'd failed in some ways, but you can't overcome the politics, as I pointed out. A bit different in Somalia, as I said, uh, I showed there that what we were doing could achieve things. And in fact, now the UN has programs similar to what I was working on, a bit more sophisticated than what I did, because I was making it up as I went along. Uh, but they have similar programs in seven different countries now. And I have to say, I think that is the way of the future. We have countries like Syria who are still fighting a civil war, but what happens to all the militias if there ever is peace? Or in Yemen? Or in Libya? Or in... And you name it, you keep on going through. What happens to all the young militiamen who only know how to carry a gun and shoot someone, kill someone? Uh, so I 
without knowing it, I guess I was doing pioneering work, but I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I was just making it up. Um, and fortunately, I seemed to sort of do it mainly right, not on everything, but got it most of it right, I think. So um, that's why, I'm, I, as I said, I think that was in some ways the proudest work I ever did on an international basis. Uh, look, I'm aware of the time uh, has, has it run away from us, but um, thank you, Rod. It's a fantastic read. Um, I commend the book. It's brilliant. Well done. Thank you. And um, very interesting. And, uh, and what a life. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I believe there's some... Thank you. Thank you.